0: And welcome to episode 2.2 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Lisa Cordles, and with me today are Victoria Farmer and Sheila Woodruff. Hello, Victoria and Sheila. Hello. Hello. Well, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program, and let's start with Sheila.
1: Hi, my name is Sheila Woodruff. I live in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm um, a wife and currently a stay-at-home mom to a sweet little one-year-old,
0: Victoria
2: I'm Victoria Farmer. I live in Waconia, Minnesota, and I'm an adjunct instructor of English and Sociology at Crown College. And I'm Lisa Cordles, and I also
0: live in Waconia, Minnesota. I'm an adjunct at Crown College, and I work in their online departments
2: doing mostly Old Testament and a little bit of English. Okay, so. Uh, Today, we're continuing our four-episode series on feminist history with a discussion of second-wave feminism and its religious counterpart, liberation theologies. Within the umbrella of liberation theologies, uh, which is a pretty large umbrella, we're going to be talking primarily about feminist and womanist theologies. First, a little secular context and terminology. The formal first wave, which we discussed in our previous episode, ends in 1920 with the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And feminism doesn't really pop up again on a national stage in the United States until the early 1960s. This of course doesn't mean that feminism or feminist concerns go away. Um, They're just not as visible in the U.S. since the achievement of suffrage. Lots of people outside the movement think that uh, post-suffrage, equality for women has been achieved. Uh, But outside of the U.S., feminists in Europe are still working to further the cause, most notably uh, the French philosopher Simone de Beauvoir, who famously writes in to The Second Sex that, quote, one is not born a woman, but becomes one. Uh, with this statement, Beauvoir, who is who is working uh, along with her, uh, shall we say, special friend, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, is working out of the existentialist tradition. She takes the existentialist premise that existence precedes essence, and in so doing, establishes the notion of socially constructed gender, which becomes pretty much the center, the backbone of mid to late 20th century feminism. Lots of anti-suffragists who campaign against the 19th Amendment do so because they think that political engagement violates uh, natural essential femininity. So by suggesting that femininity is primarily learned rather than inborn, Beauvoir begins to change how we as a culture think about gender in a huge way. If gender is in fact socially constructed, then so is gender inequality, and thus we have to figure out how to change the social structures that encourage these inequalities. So that gets us pretty much to the 1960s in the United States. And in the second wave, there are two. Uh, There's sort of this feminist split two groups of second waivers and these two groups differ in how equality should be reached One group commonly called the liberal feminists and these are um, probably the feminists you heard of the most people like Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem uh, and the liberal feminists think that the way to reform is through the current legal system through channels that already exist. So because of this, they push for reform like Roe v. Wade uh, and the ERA, uh, which still for some reason is not passed, but that's a different conversation. And they establish uh, now the National Organization for Women to get women more visibility in politics. Those are the liberal feminists. There's another group of second waivers who disagree with the liberals, who say, uh, we shouldn't work within the system that already exists because the system that already exists is standing on the back of patriarchy and therefore it's corrupted. And these are the radical feminists. they are people like Betty Dodson, who is most famous uh, for her book Sex for One, uh, which is a uh, sort of love letter to and manual for uh, female masturbation. And Shulamith Firestone, who's most famous for her book, Dialectic of Sex. Firestone says a lot of uh, really radical things in Dialectic of Sex. She is one of the first feminists to publicly argue for paid housework. Um, Also, she says that uh, women would be sort of freed from, I think she calls it the slavery of their bodies um, if we uh used only um only test tubes to uh in which to have our children if we did away with um actual incubation by humans this would be a uh, a way forward for feminism so the difference between the liberals and the radicals is that the radicals are much more uh much less legal focused much more focused on the idea of um equality through more personal, oftentimes sexual, means. So these two groups, the liberals and the radicals, are composed primarily of white women, white middle to upper class women. Um, Obviously, women of color are involved in feminism at that point. But they, because they have different concerns than these white middle to upper class women, feel the need uh, to distinguish themselves. One way that this happens is uh with the coining of the term womanist by Alice Walker uh, she starts the womanist movement this term first appears in her essay in search of our mother's gardens um, which is published in nineteen eighty three but written uh, I think about ten years earlier so in it uh, one of the, the most famous definitions of womanism that she puts forward in it is womanism is to feminism as purple is to lavender. And this is an interesting juxtaposition because it works on multiple levels. The first and most obvious level is, of course, um, a, a racial level. Purple is, is deeper and darker than lavender, like women of color are, are darker than white women. Um, so you, you get a kind of a, a pretty literal level. Uh, there but also um, womanism is to feminism as purple is to lavender speaks of um, the the layers of the movement itself womanism is known and and distinguished from uh, typical white feminism in that it involves men much more directly typically and also it involves um, a broader community structure so that's another way in which uh, the the color kind of runs deeper there.
0: Yeah. And from what I understand about womanist theology, and again, I don't claim to understand it, all of it um, in any way, that is what they want. They want to distinguish themselves from what they would consider feminism being kind of a white woman's club that they were not never a part of. And when I studied the womanist movement, it was shocking to me how often women of color were not included in the suffrage movement way back, uh, in that first wave that you talked about. And so there was always sort of a, you know, us versus them sort of mentality. And so what the best quote I ever heard about woman is thought is, you know, I'm, it was in an article from a, a black female and she said, I look at a pretty dress in the store and I think. I think of that pretty dress as feminism, it's beautiful on that mannequin, but if I put it on, it just ain't gonna look right. And I thought, okay, I get it. Um, To them, that's what feminism is. And so they started you know, really getting more movement with the womanist movement. And I agree with you 100% Victoria, there's a lot more focus on um, masculinity, what it means to be a male within the black community, but also I saw a focus on families and uh, raising children as well. So, yeah, that's, um, for me, just, just learning about that early, sort of that early exclusion of women of color in the suffragist movement that I think has led to the women's movement was very eye-opening for me.
2: Um, yeah, and I think we talked about that, um, Sheila specifically talked about that a little bit in our last episode about how, um, how Iron-Jawed Angels sort of shoehorns race in as an attempt to to both acknowledge and and remedy those um historical oversights,
1: yeah, we did talk about it a little bit and I mean, in the last episode, we were talking too about the tokenism of that movie and how the the characters that met may or may not have actually met in real life um but that it it played this really important role for a, a movie made in the twentieth twenty first century um and that it got people thinking. About this segment of the population that was very much um, disenfranchised—not just not included or didn't feel included, but was disenfranchised during the, uh, at least the suffragist movement—you know, having to literally <laughs> having to take a back seat. Um, pun fully intended to the the broader movement, you know, having women of color to march in the back of parades, as that movie contended, um, because otherwise the southern women would the Southern delegation wouldn't have it, um, and would, would remove themselves from the protest. And, and so the need to unify, but exclude people in order to be more unified was a, a real problem and, um, continues to be a real problem. If you look at, um, you know, the ways that we've progressed and that women of color still need to have this outlet. Um, you see it, I was just seeing uh, more about it today on Feministing as I was looking for um, some recommendations for this afternoon.
0: And I think Cheryl Kirk Duggan definitely, I think she gets at where the womanist movement is today in her article that I suggested for this episode, which is Globalization and Narrative. I liked it because she uses the UN articles of, you know, what it what human rights are. And as I was reading through those, first of all, I thought that was very interesting. Uh, Second of all, I liked her response to it, and I just have a quote I'd like to share and see what you guys think about that. A womanist reading for a radical understanding of human rights, where there is no excuse to withhold or overlook anyone's dignity or freedom, calling for a revolutionary understanding of human rights invites those who are able to become activists toward reforming laws of sovereign states that fail to comply with the enforcement of those rights. And then from a theological perspective she goes on to say a righteousness model of human rights insists that all human beings are holy and due freedom and human rights. And what I love about what I'm reading in these articles that are coming out of the womanist movement is they're so focused on this issue of humanity and of the flourishing woman and of just dignity for all people. And I can't help but think of liberation theology when I read many of their um, recent articles. So I was just curious what you guys thought about that as well.
1: Yeah, personally, I um, the question that was posed earlier was whether it's a matter of debate, could it not be read as liberation theology? And I You made a disclaimer earlier, Lisa, about womanism, and I have to make the same about liberation theology. I'm certainly no expert, but, you know, have read a bit here and there, and I don't see how you can separate those two ideas. Um, I'm really curious to hear what y'all have to say and maybe some of our listeners as well, because I I tend to have a real blind spot for this particular discussion. Um, As a follower of Christ primarily and as a feminist secondarily— I have found it my prerogative to commit to the flourishing of women and all people, um, as she says in the article. I conceded in previous episodes that I came to define myself as a feminist a bit late in the game, so perhaps that's why my commitment tends to be more broad. Um, The flourishing of women is certainly important to me, but my primary focus has tended to be children, kids, um, before I was a stay-at-home mom and before I was a graduate student, I was a teacher. I taught for five years in a couple of different schools. And um, the mission of my first employer out of college was, to paraphrase it, to see that one day all children would have an equal education in this country. And that's kind of been my driving mission for a number of years as well. And that obviously includes all kids, not just the female ones. Um, with that said, I worked really hard to teach my students about respect for all people and privilege that they hold, um, equality and just generally being decent people and what it takes to, to do that. So, um, that's kind of where I come from. And then in addition, I'm not a fan of the theological perspective that encourages personal discipleship at the cost of serving others. Like I have to do X, Y, Z, you know, whether it's read my Bible, pray this or that or do whatever before I can serve other people. Like I have to be good enough before I can go out into the world. Um, I have an issue with that, especially when the others in that case um, are those whose personal lifestyles or choices or circumstances, whatever it might be. You know, maybe things that we don't agree with. Um, I don't know if this has to do with the false dichotomy we've established in this country along political lines, that you can't be both politically, socially liberal and dogmatically conservative. Um, I think we can. When Jesus spoke about the least of those among us, he didn't mean that those people, quote, unquote, were worth any less than those listening to his message. I think he was talking about people who didn't have the same privileges afforded to his audience, whether they were orphans or widows or the poor. Um, that's usually the perspective we get in the biblical narrative or whose circumstances put them at odds with the rest of society, like you know prisoners, again, to stay with the, the biblical narrative. This, maybe that's obvious, but I've been amazed at the number of people, Christians specifically, that I know personally, who don't think that serving other people is a primary function of their religion – um, and I think it's one of the things holding contemporary American Christianity back from becoming the agent of spiritual change that conservatives seem to want it to be. Uh, but maybe that's another podcast.
0: I actually think that that is why just some of the things you said just really resonated with me when I learned more about womanist theology and Muharista theology, which is coming out of the Muharistas coming out of the Latin community. Right. Um, my eyes were just so open to this idea. Well, why aren't feminists talking about these issues of family of helping people why aren't we doing that as feminist theologians and so i saw myself gravitating more toward um the muharista theology and the womanist theology because it's about giving people freedom in christ and i read a a wonderful book um i will think of the name at some point victoria um and it was just all about how hagar the story of hagar in the bible has become a symbol for the womanist movement because her story was is very much their story and how her body was used and she didn't want that and how she received liberation from that situation uh, from God. And I just thought that was so fascinating. And so the womanist focus to me was much more on just the dignity of human beings. And so for me um, to say that feminist uh, womanist theology is not liberation theology, that doesn't really work for me because everything I read just tells me that it is. It, it's, it's, it just sort of breathes that to me. But then I also think, shouldn't all theology be liberation theology on some level? So I kind of wrestle with that as well, too. Um, and I, I'm with you. I don't like the idea of, you know, waiting to serve. Um, there's a great book by Henry and um, called Wounded Healer. And it's about getting out there and serving, even though maybe you don't feel prepared to. Um, and that's okay, and that's what God wants. And so I definitely concur with that, Sheila. And I think you that is very well said. yeah,
2: I, I agree with what both of you have been saying about um about the importance of group engagement and communal engagement and feminism being about sort of all caring for each other and all being connected and and that's why i um i I was really touched when I first started feminist theory by the womanist movement, and I thought like, Yeah, this really, uh, the principles of this movement seem um, incredibly practical and and incredibly connected to to the way that people really live their lives in communities. Um, Lisa told that interesting story about the dress. Um, I heard a similar anecdote when I was first starting to read um, about womanist thought and uh there it's a, a consciousness raising meeting in in the 70s i th- i think in in a big city maybe new york and um these white women are talking about how incredibly important it is for um for them to be not confined to housework and for them to be able to go to work and um a black woman speaks up and says like you're so lucky that it's a choice for you. This has never been a choice for me and my mother and my mother's mother. We've been working outside the home forever because we have to, to feed our families. So that that kind of perspective, I think, is is really interesting to, to open your eyes to privilege because we are all connected. Uh, one of the things that Cheryl Dugan says in this piece that really Um, resonated with me is on page 475 and she says denial fuels our collusion in oppression so we as people need to recognize the ways in which we're all the ways in which we're privileged and the ways in which we're marginalized and how those things those intersections connect us to other people
1: can i interject too, victoria i think it's not just denial but ignorance um I mean, denial of privilege is one thing, but ignorance, And I'm thinking more historically. I know that Walker, I haven't read In Search of Our Mother's Gardens recently, like for this podcast, but from what I remember, um, in large part, she's talking in her essay about the genius of the everyday, looking back to, you know, the women who have come before her and before us, those women in our family who we may maybe didn't see, um, how they were, um, how they were demonstrating their own genius and how they were demonstrating um, their, you know, fighting against depression. But she she really makes a case for making sure you know your history as best you can and for looking um, to those women who were before us. I know I talked about this in an earlier podcast, but I think it's just worth – Um, emphasizing, you know, to know that. And as we're interconnected to know then the histories of people who maybe aren't just related to us in a blood sense, but um, further out and further out, the Muharista and the womenist movement are good examples of understanding all of the the background to the extent that we can um, so that we can understand even better what privilege um, we come with and, um, you know, how we've gotten where we are.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, one of the things I like about womanist and muharista is this idea of the biotext. I don't know if you guys um, are familiar with that term. It was something new to me. And the biotext is how the Black women and muharista women, their bodies have been violated over the centuries by people in power over them. And so their bodies tell a story of oppression and, you know, the things that they go through and the the choices that were taken from them. And so just I have to admit, and I'm humbly willing to say this, I had an ignorance toward that until I started really diving into the thoughts and, and what they and what's really important to them. And that's where I thought the Serena Jones article you know, this whole idea of women flourishing, but the part where she said where, you know, women's bodies are valued, respected and protected from demeaning forms of exploitation, abuse and violence. This is a huge, huge part of both womanist and Mujarista, um theologies, especially womanists. They want and desire to pass on the history of the black woman to the next generation so that those women flourish. And. And also with Muharista, the Latin woman as well, they talk about, you know, just all of the, the crimes against women in Latin countries and how the body, again, tells the story. And I was just really, I admit, I was extremely ignorant to the level of violence against not only black women in America over the centuries, but just Latin women right now today. And so I just let I i am glad I think we're doing what we're supposed to be doing we're talking about it and you know it's getting out there that there's a lot of exploitation abuse and violence that is not only a part of the past but also a part of the present for many many women of uh, color and uh, and so for me I think just like you said Sheila just not being ignorant of that just not being ignorant of the
2: privilege you have I think is important so I agree with you on that yeah If I can um, jump in here, one of the things I really responded to um, about the Cheryl Kirk Dugan piece is uh, something that you just alluded to, Lisa. Um, She starts off by broadening the definition of text and and talking about the kinds of things she's going to define as a text and then thus examine and and break down in her article. And she, as you said, includes bodies. as texts, and she also includes um, popular culture as um, as a, a valuable text to uh, interpret and break down through a, um, a womanist theological perspective. And the the sociologist, the cultural critic in me just really loved that. Um, one of the things that I try to teach my students every day. Um, is is that everything is a text and every text has an argument. Um, I'm teaching Freshman Composition right now and uh, we are using uh, that book, Everything is an Argument, and I'm trying to teach them how to read and interpret the viewpoints and biases present in texts that are all around them. Um, they just finished writing papers analyzing pop songs and right now um, they're, they're writing visual arguments. So I, I really enjoyed um seeing her engage politically and theologically with uh such a broad definition of, of what a text is and how these texts shape who we are as people
0: yeah victoria i think it's great that i think again i think we're doing what we're doing as a teacher of course i think education is always the answer so if you hear me, ever hear me say that of course i'm going to say that but i do believe that to be true i think that a lot of education is what you're doing victoria opening people up to see a wider vision and whether or not feminist theology, womanist theology, Marisa theology is liberation theology. To me, it's interesting that it's even still a debate, you know, because isn't it all about, I mean, everything we're talking about to me falls under that umbrella of liberation theology. And I think Serena, or Serena, excuse me, Jones, she, she comes very close to just saying that, you know, she states that it's about community and you have to not just talk about a community where women flourish. No, you have to go out into it and make that happen in a pragmatic sort of way. And so to me, um, both womanist and muharista theology are so practical. And they would applaud, you know, what you're doing, Victoria, because it's hands on, it's teaching that next generation, how to look at the different texts that surround them, instead of just living in this place of privilege, where they don't look outside that box. And so, yeah, I think I think that's important. I hope that more educators are doing that. Um, and I hope that the focus continues to move us in that direction, uh, because I do think she's right. I think in the jo- Miss Jones is correct that you can't just talk about a place where women flourish. You have to actively get involved in practical day to day ways. And that's one thing that I just adore about the womanist and the theologies theology they are hands on day to day this is what life is like, this is the reality, and this is how we're trying to change it. Um, And so I I just love seeing that, so I just wanted to add that.
2: Yeah, and I I really loved that emphasis too. Um, I've been getting more into her work um, since I discovered that she's actually the president of Union Theological Seminary, um, which is pretty cool and i i loved her emphasis on the connection between theory and praxis because i think white feminism particularly white academic feminism frequently gets caught up in this trap of of theory and and we just sort of sit around and and postulate and talk about things but um it's um, it's more difficult and and fallen more to younger generations of feminists to actually get out in the community and and do things and and make make this change happen so i I thought that her emphasis on um theory yes, but also connections to practice was really great and necessary
1: I think that's really interesting. I was just thinking you know i I feel like there's been a real surge in maybe the past twenty years to to get, um, I'm thinking kids in high school, middle school, what have you, especially out into the community to do community service to, you know, make sure that they're helpful to others. And, um, and I wonder if kids ever think, you know, most of them are more than happy to do it. You know, some do it begrudgingly, but most see that it's a good thing to help other people. But I wonder how many kids actually think about what, um, what activities they choose and why they're important to them and. Um, what they might benefit or how they might benefit if they were a little more thoughtful and were helped to be a little more thoughtful in those processes. I'm thinking about, you know, the the surge in the 1960s of women who were not just talking about theory, but like actively going out and protesting and um, being significant agents for change that they desperately needed. Um, we still need change, obviously. So where, where are we in that? And if we're working as educators. I know you said that Lisa and Victoria both that's one of the most important things and I agree. Um, I just wonder how we can kind of tie in things that that our students already do. You know, they're already active in and part of and get them to think a little more thoughtfully. Uh, That was redundant. But anyway, to get them to think a little bit more about the choices that they're already making and how they might have theory to back up the praxis they're already involved with.
0: And I guess for me, that comes in as a mom, just knowing what my kids are up to and coming alongside that. Uh, For instance, at my daughter, Ashley, she's in middle school. They went out into the community And they did this nature walk where they talked about the environment and just all of the different things like that. But then they also talked about how to preserve the environment and the things that they could be doing. Well, that was mostly educational talking, kind of walking along and seeing things. And they came to a bridge and there was a homeless man living under this bridge. And, you know, the teacher said, you know, don't point at him. Don't don't be mean. She talked about being respectful, things like that. And which I thought was really good, by the way. I think that was very necessary. But of course, the group move on. Well, Ashley came home and she was really upset. And she wanted to know why that man was living under a bridge. Why does he have to be there? And all of these other things. And I said, well, what do you think we should do about it? Um, And I didn't say that to like make her stop talking about it. I actually wanted to know what she thought as a 10 year old young lady could be done. And she said, well, I think someone should go help him. I think someone should bring him to a place where he doesn't have to live under that bridge. Now, she's only 10. So, I mean, but in her mind, this isn't wasn't even theory at all. It, right away, if just because somebody asked her, what do you think should be done? She was already trying to formulate a plan. And so for me, I hope that I can keep growing those seeds. And I, I, I really think prayer is important. So, of course, I told her, you know, definitely pray for that man, but she was just adorable. And she said, Mom, I'll I'll pray for him, but I want to do more. And I was like, that's great. That's you taking the power of prayer and putting it into action. And so, um, and I'm not just saying this to brag about my kid or anything like that, because whatever God did with her, he just is amazing. I often say that my 10 year old is just the best soul ever. She, she can teach me some things most of the time. But I just, for me, that's where I don't know. I just feel like it's a mother's rule to like, OK, you're learning about this. How can we put that into practice? And so I don't know. That's that's my two cents on it, that I think a lot of that has to come from the home, you know, from the generations, if if you will.
1: That's really sweet. She sounds like a wonderful kid.
0: <laughs> you know, I didn't mean to brag about her, but it, it just it fit the situation. So oh, she's she, really good. Um, She doesn't pick up her toys, though, just just to balance it, so. <laughs> just to balance
1: it out. Okay. No, I mean, I was thinking similarly, I was just reading a friend's Facebook post earlier today about her six-year-old, almost six-year-old who had a similar experience, um, you know, and, and her parents have been models of how to treat others her whole life. And she's, you know, starting to, to take those actions on as a person herself. And, you know, her mom was obviously very excited about that. And, um, you know everybody was excited for her daughter but i thought well how great for you that you know these are these are messages that you've been teaching all along
0: i think that's part of it for sure but i also think you know god does give p- some people the gifts of empathy sympathy you know that sort of thing and she definitely has those gifts but i, I always want to bring it back to okay it's great to be empathetic and sympathetic but what are we going to do about it right. and i think i think that's because of my personality set which victoria knows very well Um, that I, (laughs) I want to know what we're going to do. And so I'm, that's just, as a mom, I think maybe a solution to what you were talking about, you know, it needs to, you know, come from the home. And that's one thing I just love about the Muharista theology is they are constantly talking about how to build up the family. And they constantly say in their articles and their literature, if you want women to flourish, you have to get families to flourish. And so for me, I just I find myself just so invigorated and just on fire for where they're at. And so I just wanted to
2: share that as well. Something that came up um, in the Dugan piece on globalization that I wanted to kind of tease out and talk to you ladies about is the notion of multiple voices be, because we're dealing with um privilege and and because we're dealing with groups of people who aren't always given the same platform to speak um how do we have one conversation that is also many conversations um and and should should we even think of um things like understanding or agreement as as goals in that case um that's something that, that both Jones and Kirk Dugan talk about. Um is that it is it is okay and necessary to um to not agree while you're talking about the same things and having the same conversations. Um so I, I wanted to ask um what the two of you thought about um these theories of uh of multiple voices and listening to multiple voices.
1: I think that's um Part of my, part of my concern in discussing womenist theology, and um, I am really new to the Muharisa idea, but um, and not being a person of color, I know there's always this conversation when you're when you're talking about other people's ways of thought, um, but it's important, just like we talked about in the episode um, a little while ago with the Iron Jawed Angels movie. You know, you have to. Uh it's a fine line between um tokenism for me and um and expressing like a a deep seated appreciation for a different way of thinking um that brings about you know my own revelation without like stepping on somebody else's ideology. Does that make any sense
0: yeah I, I think that makes perfect sense i mean I'm not a woman of color at i'm my father's puerto Rican but I'm certainly not. And I'm certainly not a woman of color and I'm I, I can't I never, ever want to make it seem like I'm like being tokenistic toward anything they're doing when actually I kind of agree with Victoria. I think there's been a, there's been a lot of discussion, actually, among the feminist theologians, the womanist theologians and the muharista theologians uh, on how can we come to points of agreement. And I think that gets at what you were saying, Victoria. How do we bring all these voices back together um, instead of being splintered? Or is it good that we're splintered? And that can sort of be a debatable issue, too. But I think honestly, I think the article really did kind of hit on it. You know what? There's just going to be points of disagreement. And that needs to be okay. And, you know, just being raised in the Midwest, as I have been raised, disagreements aren't good and we should avoid them whenever possible. And so um, I think just as women, I don't know if other women are raised this way. I know I was, you yes. know, okay. okay. I'm, I just, I'm from I just the
2: understand. South, dude. I went to cotillion. I no, no, like <laughs> I, I understand what you're getting at.
0: So I think we first have to embrace the idea of conflict and I, and, and conflict, when I say conflict, I, I don't mean it in the traditional way we've been taught to view it as women. I mean that healthy disagreement because that to me can foster and does foster new relationships new ways of thinking that are not tokenistic if and and I'm not saying it's easy to do that I don't even have all the answers on how to do that but I know that that's something I hope that we can make effort to do because if we can just open ourselves up to this idea that there is going to be conflict but it's going to be healthy conflict and embrace that I just think all of these movements could just do great things together. Now we're moving into the part of our show where we're passing on some recommendations to our audience. Uh, Sheila, do you want to give yours first? Sure. Um,
1: I came across the photographer Hannah Price this week. Did either of you ladies hear about her?
2: Yes. yes, so excited Yay. about Hannah Price. Yay. Okay, Very excited.
1: <laughs> so, in case you didn't get to hear about her, um she is a photographer who responded to Philadelphia men catcalling at her by taking their portraits. Um some photos she snapped immediately after their harassment and others she staged after getting the consent from the men. What results is a really interesting collection called City of Brotherly Love, and in the midst of these portraits, she includes a couple photos of renderings of other women, a salon ad, and a drawing of Marian Anderson, Um, which she included because, as she says in the NPR interview, um, quote, the non-portraits are more of how I would like to be approached. I would like to be approached in a respectable manner, or I would definitely like to fall in love. End quote. The Morning News, NPR, and Slate have articles with photos. I absolutely recommend checking them out, especially if you're interested in responding to street aggression toward women um, or visual rhetoric. It's a really clever collection and it's really beautiful stuff.
2: I actually also plan to talk about Hannah Price. Wow! <laughs> so <Yeah>. so <laughs> um, I, I am going to say uh, I second Sheila's recommendation. Yay Hannah Price's photography. Um, and I'm also going to... in uh, in concert with that um in, in terms of street harassment as as something that we should be fighting um as feminists as christian women uh i'm going to recommend the hollaback movement <laughs> um which is a social media response to street <laughs> harassment and uh you can uh you can instagram you can facebook you can text the hollaback address if you are street harassed and it's a way of sort of creating female community and uh raising awareness about the fact that most of society thinks that um female bodies in public are public property Um, and i think that the price photography He's is a great way to respond to this, uh, so check that out and check out hollowback dot com as well. Thank you so much for sharing
0: that. I'm so glad you guys brought up Hannah Price because I was very excited about all of that, and I knew about the hollowback movement, but I'm not sure a lot of our listeners do. So that would be that's fantastic. So I'm the I have the boring recommendation today. You guys had the exciting ones. Um, I am recommending the handbook from which I got the two articles for. Uh, the reading section of this podcast. And this is a newer book. So I would check it out at your library if you can. Uh, the Oxford Handbook of Feminist Theology. Uh, it is put together by two editors that made a point. And, it, you know, just reading their introduction is very inspiring. They made a point to bring those other voices together. This was very important to them. And if the voices about, what the feminist movement is all about, what feminist theology is all about, womanist, whatever. They wanted to make sure that was heard. And so you can read articles on all of the things that we talked about in this particular podcast today throughout that particular handbook that was put together. So I just wanted to share that it's just an amazing uh, collection of modern feminists and theologians. Some of them are very well-known. Some of them are are becoming more well-known. Uh, but I walked away from reading most of that book, just feeling really inspired with the conversations that are taking place. So that's my recommendation. Uh, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our, and our other at the Christian Humanist blog at org. Uh, For Victoria, Sheila, and I'm Lisa Cordles. tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss third wave feminism. And we'll be focusing on a chapter from Sarah Marcus' Girls to the Front, A True Story of the Riot Girl Revolution. And we'll be talking about Riot Girl music and the Christian responses to this genre. Until then, in Essentials Unity, and Non-Essentials Liberty, and in All Things Love.